Well, good morning again. My name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and we get to dig into God's Word this morning. So um, first, we'll do something new, Calvin and Hobbes. So, <clears throat> hey, Dad, remember our car? Why, sure. Wait a minute. What do you mean, Remember? That's, that's funny. <laughs> as long as it's not my car, right? <laughs> then it's funny. Um, so may, maybe you'll agree with me here. I, I think you will. But the older I get, the more loss I experience. Does that ring true? The older we get, the more loss we experience. And... Uh, you know, obviously stuff like, anyone lost a car before that you really liked? So I had a Volkswagen van, um, and we lived in Michigan, and I love that van. I drove it all the way from California, and then I crashed it. It was really lame. And then when I was in college, I had this uh, 1963 Ford Galaxy. It was a huge, it was a boat, and uh, the gas mileage was absolutely horrible. But it was really fun to drive, and it was like cherry red interior and white exterior. And I sold that to get the Volkswagen van, by the way. But um, but I think about you know the loss that we experience in life, you know this simple you know stuff that's like well that was a car that was really cool but it's gone but that's okay. But then we think about the reality of the important things that we lose. And one of the obvious things is, you know, as, as we get older, we lose our health. Slowly but surely, right? Amen to that? <laughs> no. But it just happens. It's part of life. I, I want to I read this passage from us from Philippians 3.8, just a verse. This is Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I don't know, thinking about the things that I've lost in my life, think about the things that you've lost in life. Some of, their, some of them are lost from just absolute stupidity, like not paying attention when you're driving. Some things are lost just because we live in a broken world. Some things are lost because of our own sin. Some, people, things, some things are lost because of someone else's sin. But every single one of us experiences loss, and we will continue to experience loss. That's bad news. Until we die, until we lose our lives, our physical lives. And that's just... That's just the reality of life. You're like, wow, glad I came to church this morning. <laughs> Great, encouraging message. But the, the reason I, I want to start by mentioning this is just that, that there is a great hope that we have in the gospel. There is a great hope that we have in who Jesus is. And that's what Paul is saying right here. All these things that I've lost are nothing 
compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And that is why we're doing this series on Can I Trust the Bible and Why Would I? Because it is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus makes all of our loss, past, present, and future loss, in comparison, nothing. Because knowing Jesus is so wonderful. So we're going through this series, Can't Trust the Bible, because that is so important. Because if the Bible is true, if the gospel is true, if Jesus is true, if Jesus is who he says he was, and the promises in Scripture for us are true, then that changes everything. But if it's not true, then it's worse than useless. So last week, we did the introduction, Can I Trust the Bible? And the, 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 the answer was, if you remember, yes. And then we talked about, why, why would I? And the answer was basically this, because it points us to Jesus in whom is found life. That's why we would trust the Bible. And then how do we? And so we talked about a little about Mr. Herman Udix. And, uh, and we did a little talking, too, about the, the confidence that we have in the scriptures and the confidence that we can have in our understanding of scriptures and how important it is that we have a hunger for the scriptures. And this morning, the sermon title is, Did Jesus Really Exist? What's the evidence? And just... Uh, you know, you're wondering, like, oh, you're on the edge of your seat. What's he going to say? The answer is yes. Jesus did exist. We're going we're to answer three questions. Uh, what are the facts? When is it faith? And where are the feelings? So those are the, that's the outline for this morning. We're going to talk about those three things. What are the facts? When is it faith? And where are the feelings? And, and the big idea, if there's one thing that we should go away, that the would be wonderful if we go away from this morning, from this message, it's with knowing this, that Jesus really existed, that we have that confidence, and that we're saying to ourselves, man, this changes everything. Everything is different because Jesus is true. So one of my favorite sources, a very trustworthy source, it's called Wikipedia. <laughs> so uh, this, the article on the Christ myth theory says this. The, the Christ myth theory, also known as the Jesus myth theory, or Jesus mythicism, or the Jesus ahistoricity theory, a means not, so Jesus is not an historical figure, theory, is the view that the story of Jesus is a work of mythology with no historical substance, substantiality. Thank you. I just did that so you would feel better about not being able to pronounce some words. 
So that's what the Christ myth theory is. Uh, and then a little later in the article, it says this, mythicism is rejected as a fringe theory by virtually all scholars of antiquity. So in other words, Jesus really did exist. And you're like, I knew that, Steve. But I'm just giving you some more evidence. So what are the facts? So that's, we're going we're gonna to look at some, some more facts. And again, this is just a reminder. So as our, as our outline for the series, we're using this book by William Mount. So I'm going to refer to a few, uh, a few of his quotes and others as well. So I want to read us a passage from Luke. Luke 1, 1 to 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, so this is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. By the way, Theophilus means friend of God. That's a cool name, isn't it? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke, thought by many contemporary historians to be one of the, one of the best ancient historians. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. That's how he begins the Gospel of Luke. The facts. Jesus, Jesus exists. Think about this, this passage we just read in Luke. And I just want to highlight a few, a few of the historical markers in here. Like just the first four verses of Luke. You're thinking, how, did Luke really think that this Jesus really existed or is he just kind of making something up? So a few historical markers. In verse 1, it says, the things that have been accomplished among us. Does that sound like Luke is talking about something that really happened? Kind of sort of does, doesn't it? Okay. And then verse 2, it says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So remember, Luke is writing, and these eyewitnesses are still alive. So he's expecting these eyewitnesses to, to read his work. Eyewitnesses, someone who has seen, someone who's witnessed with their own eyes, historical marker right there. Verse 3, or sorry, at the end of verse 2, it says, when it's with the word, have delivered them to us. So Luke did his research. People were sharing with him what they experienced, and Luke did his research and is writing down what people, eyewitnesses had told him. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past. So again, Luke has been following these things. Luke is an ancient journalist, does research. And then it says, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. An orderly account. So he is organizing the material that he's done research on, talking to eyewitnesses. Do you get the idea that this is an historical event that, an events that Luke is writing about? And then why? Verse 4. 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And again, this morning, I hope we walk away from here this morning that we go out and enjoy the rest of our Sundays knowing, being reminded of the reality that Jesus and his life and ministry and his resurrection from the dead, his death for you and me and his resurrection to life, that we are certain of these things. William Lane Craig writes this, we have actually more historical information about this relatively obscure man, the Galilean preacher named Jesus of Nazareth, than we do about many major figures of antiquity. William Lane Craig also writes, there are certain coops out there writing today, especially on the internet. Have you ever noticed that there's some really weird things on the internet? who make these radical claims like Jesus of Nazareth never existed and so forth, and they are completely rejected within the guild of professional historians and biblical scholars. So not just Christian scholars, not just Christian historians, but within the guild of professional historians and biblical scholars. Luke Timothy Johnson says this, even the most critical historian can confidently assert that a Jew named Jesus worked as a teacher and wonder worker in Palestine during the reign of Tiberius, was executed by crucifixion under the perfect Pontius Pilate, and continued to have followers after his death. So um, in William Nounces' book, there's a uh, list of non-biblical references to Jesus by non-Christian writers in the first century and the early second century. So I'm going to mention a few of these. So Josephus, he was, a, he was a Jewish historian. Not a Christian. These are, none of these are Christians. These are non-Christian, early from first century or early second century, writing about Jesus. Pliny the Younger was a Roman and a non-Christian. Suetonius was a Roman and non-Christian. Tacitus was a Roman and non-Christian. Thallus was a Roman and non-Christian. Lucian of Samosata was a Greek writer, and Mara ben Serapion was a Greek writer. William Mounts writes in his book, given the abundance of non-biblical information on Jesus, it almost seems to be willful, willful ignorance to deny his actual existence. So we can be confident that Jesus existed, that the scriptures are true, when they say that Jesus existed and all of, these, all of these things that Jesus did and taught. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says, 14 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Paul is saying here that if the resurrection of Jesus is not an historical event, and by the way, that kind of necessitates Jesus being an historical figure, right? If it didn't really happen, then Christianity is, is useless. Your 
faith is useless. The facts that he existed. That's the facts. The facts true, though, are that he did more than exist. And uh, so looking at all these, I gave these list of these ancient writers uh, outside of the scriptures who, um, uh, who, who referred to Jesus. This is a list of what we know, a summary of what we can know about Jesus from these non-biblical sources. So if we take the Bible out of the picture and we say that the Gospels, we can't, and, and the New Testament, we can't take that into account, which by the way, by the way, is really a ridiculous thing to, to expect. And so it's, it's so weird. Like fami- we, when we think of the Bible, we think of, we think of you know, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the first four Gospels, and, and we think, well, the Bible is one book, but it's not. The New Testament is not just half of one book. The New Testament is a compilation of a number of books. The Gospels are four different historical sources that later were recognized as Scripture. And so it's really not a a very good historical approach to say, well, I want to know about the real Jesus, so I'll reject the Gospels. By the way, if you want to dig into this stuff more, uh, there's a, a small blog post on our website. Just go to our Cold Springs Church website and click on, on the very top. You'll see the, the link for Cold Springs blog. And there's an article there on uh, this topic, the historicity of Jesus. There's a few small videos of uh, William Lane Craig and others and an article if you want to dig more into this stuff. But you might be like, no, Steve, that's enough. What you said this morning, I'm... I've had enough. <laughs> okay, here's the list. Okay, Jesus lived. Newsflash, Jesus actually lived. He was Jewish. He lived in the first third of the first century. People believed that he had been born out of wedlock. Jesus' ministry overlapped with John's, John the Baptist. Jesus worked wondrous feats. He gathered disciples. He lived in conflict with the Jewish authorities. He was described as a sorcerer who led Israel astray. Some believed him to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was believed to have been raised from the dead by his followers who now worship him as God. His brother James is martyred in AD 62. That's a a lot of information. Sounds pretty consistent with the scriptures, with the gospels, doesn't it? These are all, we can know this from information, historical sources outside of the scriptures, outside of the four gospels. The facts, Jesus was expected. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, which means the first, the first place in scripture that we see the, the, the gospel. Way back in Genesis 3.15, this is what... Um, Right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that God said, don't. Then God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you 
a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. And these are just a few of the many, many, many prophecies of the Messiah coming. They were expecting a Messiah to bring victory to God's people by crushing their enemies, and in their mind, that was freeing them from Roman rule, a Messiah who would conquer their enemies and bring them back to the glory days of King David. That's what they expected. That's what the Jews at the time of Jesus expected. And of course, what did they get? They got a Messiah who came in humility and love and grace and not in power and judgment. They got a Messiah who died for their sins and not only their sins, but the sins of the world. The Jews were very self-focused And Jesus came to die, not for just for the, the Hebrew people, but for you and me as well. What they got, a Messiah who invited them into a new unseen kingdom of God where he rules in the hearts of men and women. A Messiah who had a bigger and better plan than the Jews ever dreamed of. They got surprised. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says this, reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel like we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing that anyone would have made up. It is just that queer twist about it that real things have. All right, question number two. When is it faith? Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So notice from this passage, three things. Faith is a head thing, faith is a heart thing, and faith is a hands thing. Without faith, is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's a head thing. And then he rewards those who seek him. That's a head thing. That's information. That's an intellectual, an intellectual exercise. I agree with these facts. Faith is a head thing. As a Christian... We believe truths about who Jesus is, that he lived, that he did miracles, that he died, that he was a son of God, God in the flesh. And he died for me, and that he loves me. There are things that we believe about God and about Jesus. Knowledge. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, 
So faith is also a heart thing. It affects our, our feelings, our affections. Noah had reverent fear. Why? Because the truth, the truth that he understood was that his life was in danger if he did not do something. So he had feelings attached to this intellectual agreement with facts. It's a head thing, it's a heart thing, and it's a hands thing. Noah did something. He built an ark to save him and his household. Is your faith a head thing and a heart thing and a hands thing? All right, question number three. Where are the feelings? Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I read that verse and I, I, think, I think of just reality that in our deepest inner being that we are broken. For the Hebrews, the heart was the was your deepest inner being that has an impact. It, it, it's your, your intellect, it's your mind. It, it impacts your actions. It's your being. It's who you are. In our deepest inner being, we are broken. We are broken in who we are and what we love and what we do. We are broken in our head. We are broken in our hearts. And we are broken in our hands. question. If you don't feel it, is it real? If you don't feel it, are you for real? (laughs) We're talking about faith. If you don't feel it, is your faith real? You ever have that question? I don't feel close to God these days. I wonder if God really exists. I read the scriptures and I I don't feel anything. Maybe God doesn't love me. Or if I don't feel it, am I for real? I don't feel like, a, like I'm walking with God. I don't feel this intimacy with God. Maybe my faith isn't real. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. And then what do we do with that? Do we fake it? Just pretend? Just pretend it's real? Or maybe, maybe we can force it to be real. Question, do facts follow feelings or do feelings follow facts? We live in a very confused world, don't we? We live in a world that believes that facts follow feelings. That if I believe something enough, then it's true. Is that, is that not the way, the culture we live in these days? I, I would suggest... I would adamantly suggest that is wrong. Why? Because I don't feel like it's true. (laughs) Feelings follow facts. Feelings follow facts. 
So if you believe something that's untrue, you will very likely have feelings that are real feelings, but they're based on lies. I don't know about you, but I want my feelings to be based on truth. So the question is, what or who defines our reality? And there's two fancy words, because I like fancy words. I can't pronounce them, but I like fancy words. Anthropocentric. So anthropos is the Greek word for, uh, for human beings. And, uh, and anthropocentric, you might guess, then means regarding humankind as the central or most important element of existence. So we can live our lives being anthropocentric people. Or we can be theocentric. Theo is, means God in Greek. Hence the word like theology, the study of God. Having God as a central focus. Anthropocentric. Man-centered. And if you're tempted to live like that, remember Proverbs 14, 12. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So if we go by our own thinking and our own feelings, our own truth, the end is death. But the theocentric life is described well in 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Life or death. Who defines reality for you? If we define reality or if the world around us defines reality, then we will... We will death is the end. If we let God define reality, if we live our lives theocentrically, then we have life. So if I don't feel it, is it real? Who God is and what he has done for you is not dependent on your feelings. Isn't that good news? Who God is and what he has done for you is not dependent on your feelings. So if you don't feel it, are you for real? If you don't feel the faith, if you don't feel God, is your faith real? When you put your faith in God, your relationship with God is not dependent on your feelings, but on his character. And that's more good news, right? When you put your faith in God, your relationship with God is not dependent on your feelings, but on his character. So if I don't feel it, what do I do? Do I fake it or can I force it? The best way to grow in your affections for God, to feel it, is to saturate your mind with the truth of who he is and what he has done for you. Because feelings follow facts. So if we saturate our minds with truth, then the feelings the feelings should come. 
So there's two possible errors about feelings. First is to care, to not care at all that we don't feel close to God. That's, that's a mistake. Well, I don't feel close to God, but oh well. That's a mistake. Another error is to care so much about my feelings that I trust them over God's word. When we don't feel close to God, may that be, may that be pressing us into his presence. I don't feel you, God, so I want to saturate my mind with your truth so that my feelings will come. Psalm 63.1 says this, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Maybe you're experiencing that these days where you feel like you are in a dry and weary land where there is no water, spiritually. The psalm continues, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. I have experienced it. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. So if you are not experiencing intimacy with God these days, earnestly seek him, long for him, and remember, remember what he has done in the past. How do I grow in my affections for God? So here at Cold Springs, we have a definition of a disciple of Jesus as someone who follows Jesus in an ever-deepening relationship of love with God and others and helps others do the same. So I want to make the humble suggestion this morning that if you want to grow in your affections for God, that other people are a key part of that. And my guess is that you have experienced that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. You know that you need people in your life who love Jesus. So I want to just give another plug for our 3G faith. Be one that makes one that makes one. If you're longing for more affections for God, for more intimacy with him, for that experience, then I encourage you to, to step in, to press in to those relationships with other believers, intentionally seeking out to be mentored, to mentor one another, and to mentor another. So you can sign up online, by the way, if you just click on 3G Faith, there's an easy way to sign up, or just talk to someone at the connections table. And by the way, that's not the only way. There are other ways to connect. On, the, on our website, there's a connect page. You click on connect, and there's so many different opportunities to, uh, to, to be with each other and to do life well together. Speaking of which, Ashley Hazlitt gave me permission to share this. Uh, you know, we get, uh, the, and there, Daniel shared earlier, we have the, the, um, the welcome cards that you can fill out and put prayer requests and praises there. And it just gives us so much joy to celebrate what God is doing and Ashley wrote this uh, this past week. Phrase report. Three exclamation points. 
Our family has felt the pool of your prayers over us. God has been all over us and in us. We pray together more. We are present more. We encourage each other more. And individually, we've each felt his encouragement in us. So thank you. God is good. And he never lets us down. That's from Ashley Hazlitt. Praise the Lord. So it, maybe, you, maybe you're experiencing that too. Maybe, maybe the Lord is working in your life in ways that you just want to share. And so you can do that. And we as a church, we want to continue to share the stories of God working among us. I want to close with the scripture from John 20, familiar passage. These are written, this is at the end of the Gospel of John, all these things that I wrote, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Trust the Bible and trust your life to Jesus and live. Would you please stand with me as we close in prayer? Jesus, thank you that we can be here to worship you this morning and be reminded that you, you are real, you are true, and that the scriptures are true, and we trust the scriptures. And we have hope because of your word and what it tells us is true. And we entrust our lives to you because you love us, you are our savior, and you give us this great hope and we have life in your name. We pray, amen.